Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. We're in a series called Living Out Loud, and, um, and we're walking through the Psalms, which for many of us is like the favorite place we go in the Old Testament, right? But I have to confess, as I've been thinking about living out loud, um, one, of this, one of these things, one of these ideas that we have to cover with living out loud is this idea of living a life that is for lack of a better term, demonstrative. And when I think of all the things that God has asked me to do, asked you to do, asked his church to do, the people of God to do, think of all the things that are on the list, whatever those things might be, you can run that list in your head. Probably the hardest thing, the hardest discussion in my life between me and the Lord is this idea of living out loud. That the things that are true of me, the things that I believe, aren't supposed to be things that are hidden things inside of me. That those very things that I've been given, those gifts or those words, all those things that God has given to me, gifted to me, all of those things were meant to spill over into everybody else's life around me. And it's probably one of the hardest asks that I'm faced with. I mean, it's easy to say, live out loud. Put your heart on your sleeve. But I don't think it even matters if you're an introvert or an extrovert. When it comes to living the way God intended, it is hard. It's hard to live in the context in which we live and to live truly a demonstrative, out loud kind of an existence. And for me, it's probably incredibly hard, right? I'm just thinking of all the things that I've been called to do. This is one of the hardest things. And maybe it's different for you, but this is one of the hardest things I have to admit to is the thing that I'm about to preach is the thing that I struggle with and perhaps struggle with most in my life. When it comes to my, my, my family, when it comes to the way I live my life, living out loud can be a difficult, difficult thing. So what do we mean by living out loud? Well, I don't mean, uh, you know, putting a Jesus picture on your shirt or another cross tattoo on your arm. I mean what Paul means when he talks about the role of Christians in society as the church functioning, rubbing shoulders with society around them in 1 Corinthians. Listen to this verse. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 50. And I memorized it as a child. And, uh, and it's a verse I've tried to live out. But this is what we mean by living out loud in New Testament sense. Therefore, my beloved brethren, that's you, that's me, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now here's the picture I think that Paul is actually painting for us. It says it's easy for some of us to be steadfast, have good theology, it's easy for some of us to be immovable. We have good morality. You know what's hard? What's hard is abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. That word toil brings attention into our lives. Because if we are abounding, we are experiencing toil. If we're not abounding, we're not experiencing toil. Listen, you could be steadfast. You could be immovable, if I'm reading this correctly, and you could have no toil. You could go live in the woods. You can be as pure as you want to be. 
But if you're going to have toil in your life, it's because you are abounding in the work of the Lord. That the Lord actually has given you these things so that you can go produce something for him in the context that will require toil. That idea of abounding is unique. It's interesting. It actually means to live in excess. Like there aren't very many things Christians have been told to live in excess. Right? We usually think in terms of the opposite. Like be disciplined. But here we're told to live in excess. Abound. Superabound is the word. Like, if there's anything you should be known for, it's the work of the Lord. And if you are known for it, you will have toil. Jesus centers in on this when he calls his disciples together and he begins to teach them. And in Matthew chapter 7, listen to how Jesus describes toil. What it's going to be like, what it's going to look like if we try to live an out loud kind of life. Matthew chapter 7, 13 says, enter through the narrow gate. There's a gate that you and I, if we believe in Jesus, have entered through. It's called the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad. That leads to what? Destruction. Corruption. And he says this, Jesus says this to his disciples, and there are many, there are many who enter through it. You know what that means? That means in our lifetime and for all generations, even though the church is on the move, even though the church is designed for growth, even though the church, the kingdom of God is growing and it has been growing and will continue to grow, and I believe at the end, the kingdom of God will be bigger than all other kingdoms. At the same time, this truth brings attention into our lives that in our context, in our culture, and this is probably what you feel and probably what we see, probably something we buy into and already know, is that there are a few of us who are going through the narrow gate, but there are many of us in our society who are going through the broad gate. If there are many who are going through the broad gate and it leads to destruction, here's the tension that that creates in our lives. This is given to people who are still alive. Like this is a present tense reality. Like I don't just enter a gate and then whoosh, I'm gone. I enter a gate and then I keep living in the context where other people have entered through a gate that leads to destruction. They're living destructive lives around me, around my life, around my family, around my loved ones, around my church, around, around my children and the children's children. Like this is the context we're supposed to live in, Jesus says. In this context, there's going to be destructive forces, destructive influences. To live... An unguarded life in a culture of corruption could lead to destruction. But there's actually a more immediate danger for you and for me that relates to this topic of living out loud. And the more immediate danger of living in a broad world, the more immediate danger that you and I face isn't buying in to all the immorality Although certainly that's something we have to watch out for. We should be alert. We shouldn't be unguarded in the world in the context God's asked us to live in. But the more immediate danger is that we will simply be quiet. We'll simply be silenced. In an effort to avoid those who are going down the broad path, we may simply be lulled into silence and no longer live an out loud kind of life. And it's easier than you think. So what we want to do in this series, Living Out Loud, a walk through the Psalms, what we want to do is we want to walk through ways, ways that the ancients lived out loud. 
And there's actually five that we're describing that we want to point your attention to. And we started last week with Pastor Chris talking about praise. So that was the first one. This week we're going to get into wisdom. You already heard that. We'll get there in a minute. Uh, But we're going to also talk about lament, instruction, and thanksgiving. These are different genres within the Psalms that are ways or pathways that ancient people walked in an effort to live out loud in a corrupt society and culture. And this is so interesting is the Psalms are written over a thousand year period of time. So over a thousand years, from Moses all the way to Ezra, we have all of these Psalms being written down for the people of God. And that's significant because that tells us that this isn't just a momentary experience with the Word of God, but that these are supposed to be ways of living for the people of God forever. There's something here for us that we can glean. So we talked about praise, you know, it's something to praise God in the midst of the storm. And we praise even in a culture of corruption that tells us not to talk about God. And when we praise, something happens. That's the pathway that we hear about and encounter in the Psalms. We're going to look at that in wisdom too, but how about lament? Lament is one of those things we'll get into next week. And lament is one of those things that we don't really experience very much in our culture, but it's critical because We aren't just shiny, happy people marching upward to Zion where everything's just going to be a bed of roses, where righteousness just sort of breaks out around us. The fact of the matter is, is that we live in a broken world. And we live, if we're Christians, we live in a broken world, and so we live in it. We live in reality. We don't divorce ourselves from reality in in an effort to be hopeful people. We've got plenty of hope that is certain, despite the realities we live in. We don't make up a world that doesn't exist. We live, we are rooted in this world, and it is broken. And that's why things don't always work out the way that they should. And God is fighting against the brokenness, and we believe that God will someday renew the brokenness. But in the midst of the brokenness, it's probably appropriate that we lament. And it's actually a pathway to effect change in society. We're going to learn about that. Come back next week for that. Then we're going to talk about instruction. Instruction is critical. This is just simply, what has God said for us that we should exalt, that we should talk about? There's a whole lot more. There's a whole lot more instruction than you probably are aware of. And then Thanksgiving, there's nothing better, nothing better in a a culture that is corrupt. No better way, I think, to live out loud than to simply just be a grateful person. In a culture that demands victimhood, we can be the change agents by just being ridiculously grateful. Amen? So we're going to talk about all of these things. And, uh, and we're going to talk about it from the context today of wisdom. What is wisdom and what pathway does wisdom give us to be able to live out loud? And what change does it make in the world around us? Well, if we actually think about the concept of wisdom, the first thing you probably imagine is not the Psalms, if we're honest. The first thing you think about is the Proverbs, right? If you want to go to find out what wise living looks like, we'll go to the Proverbs. Well, wise living in the Proverbs is simply this idea, this idea that there is a right way to live, there's a, a successful way to live, there's a certain order to life, and the Proverbs personalize this or personify this idea. And it personifies the idea of wisdom with a picture of the image of a woman. And she's known as Lady Wisdom. Now there's another woman in the Proverbs, and the two play against each other. There's Madam Folly, and there's Lady Wisdom. And obviously the, the writer of the Proverbs wants us to be more attracted to Lady Wisdom. 
But here's two things you've got to understand about wisdom that are so, so powerful. And we're going to circle back around on these two things later on this morning. And this, this, that when Lady Wisdom is personified, when she's described, she's described in two specific ways. One, she is incredibly loud. Wisdom is loud. She calls out to anybody who might hear. She's absolutely loud. She can be heard from a long distance away. None of this little quiet voice stuff. Like she's a roaring lion. That's wisdom personified in a woman. But here's the second thing wisdom is. Wisdom, as this woman, stands in the public square on the street corner. In other words, wisdom is available. That's what the author wants us to understand from the Proverbs. That wisdom is available, she's visible, she's being manifested, anybody who walks by. Anybody who walks by can see her. She's loud and obnoxious sometimes. And she's on the street corner, and if you want her, you can get her. That's the nature of wisdom. Actually, we talk about the gospel. We talk about the gospel in terms of very narrow conversation, right? Jesus saves, etc., etc. When it comes to wisdom, you don't need to know God. According to the Proverbs, wisdom is available to everybody whether or not you know God. But if you want to go further in wisdom than everybody else around you, a fear of God will get you there. That's the picture, the image that we get. Wisdom is available, and it's available to absolutely everybody. So that's the image we get, but we want to go into the Psalms. So what I want to do is I want to take you to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. And it's probably a psalm that's familiar to you, but it's an incredibly important psalm. And we'll take a look at that in just a minute, why it's so important. But it was written, it was written in a time when corruption was just literally everywhere. It was written by Ezra and Nehemiah, but it was during that time period. Excuse me, it was, it was not written at that time period, but it was exposed at that time period um, for Israel. And it was the time period when Israel was returning from captivity. So they had, they had disobeyed God. They'd been kicked out of the land is the, the way the story goes. You're familiar with that. And then they get the opportunity to return back to the land and they want to build a holy nation. And so they want to start on the right foundation. And so there's a number of Israelis who come back to the land. But as they come back to the land, they meet some serious challenges. Challenges I think you and I can probably identify with. One of those challenges was that they were not just entering a land that was empty and filling it with themselves, but they were actually entering a land that was filled with some other peoples, people who did not worship their God. And so as they enter the land, they enter a land that is filled with the demonic, filled with corruption. It was not the Israel that their ancestors had known where David was on the throne and God was worshipped everywhere. It was a secular, if you will, society. Actually, it was a pagan society where everything was devoted to a different God. And they tried to bring Yahweh and Yahweh worship back into this land. But you can imagine that this would have been an incredible struggle. The struggle was real. But it wasn't just real because there were other inhabitants in the land. There was actually some deficiencies in the people themselves that made things problematic. One of them is that they had essentially, most of them, had lost the language of the Hebrews. And as a result, they couldn't even describe some of the things that, that you and I take for granted about God. In fact, we get this story of the scribes reading the Old Testament to the Jews in these days, these time periods of Ezra and Nehemiah, for the first time, and the people absolutely weep. They weep 
because they never heard these good words. They, they heard about a God who actually loved them enough to write something down so that it could instruct how they should govern and treat each other. And, and they encountered this truth for the first time and it just rocked their world. Well, you can imagine if your language has been robbed from you, your culture has been robbed from you, and now you're trying to raise kids, you're trying to forge a new life in a context where it's filled with animosity and a different place, a different culture, that the struggle had to have been something that, that felt, like, felt like everything was against you. Everything was trying to cancel you out. Every move you made was a move where there was an obstacle placed in your way. And this is exactly the way they felt. But there was something else that was even more difficult for them to deal with. And it's this. It felt like this. It felt like the wicked held all the cards. There it is. It felt like the wicked held all the cards. Have you ever felt like that? As the Jews entering the land, they knew where the money came from. They knew that by and large, for the most part, the money came from Persia, from a wicked pagan king. And that he's extended for them the ability for, for, for the Jews to return. But at any moment, snap of a, a finger, a change of mind, a change of heart, everything could be quickly undone. They were dependent on those that they had no trust for. Now, many of them believed God was about to do a great work. Of course, Ezra and Nehemiah were part of that. But you can imagine many of them sitting there going, I don't know what comes next. I don't know what to hope in. And you can imagine a generation growing up in that culture wondering what life would be like if the wicked owned it all. What was God going to do? Well, it's at this moment God speaks, like he often does. And what he does is he anchors into their culture an ancient psalm. A psalm probably, we don't know for certain, probably written by David. Psalm 1. He anchors this song into their culture. It had been around, but it could possibly have been lost. But here, Ezra, Nehemiah, the leaders of Israel, bring this ancient song forward in history. And they place it as a prominent song for Israel to investigate. It's a song of wisdom. It's a wisdom psalm. It was, it was meant to teach wise living, just like the Proverbs were. And Ezra and Nehemiah were smart enough to know that the words that are contained in here would teach Israel and the next generation how to live successfully, how to live out loud kind of lives. And it would teach them the product of what would happen if they did live lives out loud. Instead of shrinking back, if they were to live lives of prominence in the culture that they found themselves in, what would happen? And so it's interesting because as Ezra and Nehemiah come to the Psalms, we know, we know for certain that the Psalms, as you know, were written over a thousand-year period of time. But the current form that you and I read in our Bibles is dictated to us by Ezra. So at the very end, he takes all the Psalms that have been written over a thousand-year period. He assembles them together. And guess which Psalm he believes is most important? a psalm of wisdom. And so he places it in the place of most prominence, as if to suggest this is the most important psalm. We call it Psalm 1. Are you ready? What I want to do is I want to take you through it to find out just exactly what wisdom looks like and what wisdom is meant to produce 
in terms of this out loud kind of life. So here we go, and listen to how the psalm begins, and it's absolutely profound. How blessed is the man. Now, that's interesting to me because this word blessed, this word blessed isn't the normal word blessed like we get, oh, how happy. It's not Barak. It's Asar. And that means that what is actually happening here is this person, this blessed person, is a person who is enviable. It's a rough translation. But it's that idea that this person is somebody other people look to and wish they were like. It's like going, man, I wish I had a husband like that. I wish I had a wife like that. I wonder how you live that way and how do you do your finances? You seem to always know what's coming. You know the trends. How do you do that? And it isn't the idea of evil or something, uh, something sinister going on here, um, but it's that thing that we do all the time where we go, that person, they just know how to live. I wish I could have coffee with that person. It's enviable the way they live. So right out of the gate, we have this idea in Psalm 1 that there's something public, something that's supposed to take place. Our lives, our lives are meant to be enviable. People are supposed to look at us and go, wow, how do you do that? There's something that's supposed to be peculiar about us. We're not to look exactly like everybody around us. We aren't Broadway kind of people. We're narrow gate kind of people. How blessed is the man, and then we get into the structure, and we're told what not to do. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. There's obviously a progression here from standing, walking, sitting, all these things come together to emphasize a very specific point. There is a way that people think. There is a conversation that people are in. And, and the wise understand the nature of the conversation and its wickedness, and they don't participate. This isn't at all to suggest that we don't engage. It isn't to suggest that we don't become friends with people who happen to be in the conversation. It just suggests that the wise understand where the wickedness goes. They're able to connect the dots. They're able to connect the dots between wicked thinking and wicked outcomes. Like if you think this way and you share this narrative, this is the outcome. The wise understand that. And as a result, they don't walk that way. They don't join in on the narrative. They create a new narrative. So this is what they don't do. Well, what do they do? Verse 2. Well, his delight, the one who is blessed, who's enviable, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now this is strategic, right? This idea of delighting or meditating. Like what is it that the, the wise do in this moment? When the narrative of the world is all corrupt, what is it that the wise do? Well, they don't create their own narrative. They don't self-actualize some new thought that's never been thought. The wise go backward. They go back to ancient teaching. They go back to the God who created. They want to know his narrative, his story, his ways. And so they delight in his ways. And they realize that when the foundations of the world were laid, they were laid in wisdom. They realized that relationships were, were, were designed a certain way, and if I could tap into the way that we were designed, that we would experience fruitfulness and production in our lives. They understand that God is the God who created currency, and, and, and that as a result, that there's a way to treat each other that, that actually brings fruit to life 
that, that, that streams of living water can flow out of our souls if we are able to be in tune to the ways and the plans and practices of God. And so the wise delight in that because they want that productivity in their life. So they chase it down, and they do so day and night. And it's as if to suggest there's never not a moment where we're going to need his words in this corrupt world. Well, what's the result? The result is in verse 3. He will be like a firmly planted tree, a tree firmly planted or rooted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And then here's the whole point. Whatever he does, whatever he does, he prospers. It's actually a chiastic structure. Uh, this is something that we all understand. It's poetry that we're reading. And a chiastic structure in poetry goes something like this. You have an A thought, you have a B thought, and then you have a C thought. And then you go back to a B thought, and then you go back to an A thought. The two A thoughts correspond. They parallel. It's poetry. The B thoughts correspond. Both the A and the B thoughts point us to the C spot. You were right there with me, right? So we can actually know, without being theologians, exactly what the point is by looking at the parallelisms in the Hebrew language. And the point of the psalm is the wise prosper. And we find it in the middle where we would expect it in verse 3. If you want to prosper and be enviable, here's how you do it. Now, you have to understand this is proverbial language. Proverbs are normally true. This is one slice of the pie in God's economy. It doesn't mean that every time I do the right thing, I'm going to prosper. But it does mean that most of the time, I'm going to prosper. I'd have to define prosperity correctly. It's in season, which means it's not all day long for the rest of my life. It's at the right moment. It's when God wants something to happen. That God is behind it. But it is this idea that God is with it. He's in on this with me. That he wants to care for me. So you go see other psalms, and those other psalms will say, I did everything right, God, and my enemies are victorious over me. But I still hope in you. Why the hope? Because of Psalm 1. Because the time's coming when prosperity will be my story. This is a slice of the pie God wants for us. It's something we chase after. It's appropriate then to chase after it. So the wise end up prospering here. What happens to the wicked? Well, now we go backwards. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. So, he continues in verse 5, Therefore, therefore, if that's true, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What's he trying to say? He's saying, listen, here's what's going to happen in the day of judgment. Well, when is the day of judgment? Well, many commentators have looked at this or people throughout history and said, well, the day of judgment is a heaven and hell issue. It's the final judgment. But that would have been a foreign concept to David if he is the one who writes this. Frankly, it would have been a foreign concept to anybody prior to the New Testament. So it's probably not about some far-off future judgment that is being discussed here in Psalm 1, especially if it's being written by David. So what is it talking about? Well, it's likely talking about a courtroom scene something that would have been very familiar in ancient Near Eastern culture. What they believed in the ancient Near East is that every time a court was assembled for any matter, that it wasn't just the members of the court that were in the room, but the gods were in the room with them. And that the gods were actually showing up and rendering verdicts through the human agents. And as a result, you should be careful how you judge. 
because the gods will judge you. So there was this chorus, this chorus, this statement that was being proclaimed, determining who was in the right and who was in the wrong. And what the psalmist is suggesting is here in this moment, in the day of judgment, whenever that day is on an individual level, when the, when the rubber meets the road, when the slander, the gauntlet has been levied against you, in that moment, God is in your room. God is there, he's in the courtroom, and he is rendering a verdict that he shows no partiality. And the verdict he renders has eternal consequence attached to it. So be careful. See, be careful how you render a, judge, a verdict when the judge is in the room. And the psalmist is saying, the wise understand this. They understand that God is in the room when the courts of men are open. Even in a culture that is corrupt, God is rendering a verdict. So be careful. The verdict you render. It's interesting to me because ultimately what God is after is righteousness dwelling and wickedness perishing. That's in fact how he writes it. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. If you're righteous, he knows your way. That's the way he knows. That's the only way he knows. He's intimate with it. And if you're righteous, he's intimate with you in that moment, even if you've been slandered and falsely accused. Even if the judgment of the courts was not in your favor, God is ruling in your favor, and there will be an outcome for your advantage. That's what this psalm is suggesting. The, way, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now you can imagine how encouraging those words would have been to a group of exiles returned to a land in the context of wickedness and corruption, the context of poverty where the wicked held all the power and had all the cards where the narrative was absolutely opposed to everything the parents were trying to teach the children. You can imagine how encouraging that would be, but here's what I want you to focus on for just a minute. The Proverbs personalize this by giving us this image, this personification of a woman. And where can the woman, Lady Wisdom, be found? She is found in the public square. She's public. Here in the Psalms, the very first Psalm, perhaps the most prominent Psalm, certainly the most important Psalm in the era that we're talking about for Ezra and Nehemiah, which is why it's placed in this order. Here, what do we discover? We discover that God shows up in the public square, in the courtroom, in the place of judgment. Can you think of a more public environment with greater consequence on earth than a court. And it's here that God determines to prove that he is with the righteous. It's in this moment that he says, I'm with you. I know your way, but the way of the wicked will perish. You can be certain of it. In other words, here's what we're hearing from both the Proverbs and from the Psalms. The prosperous, and don't miss this, the prosperous, what do they do? They live public lives. And the, the writer, the author of Psalm 1 wants us to make the connection. Wants us to make the connection that, that wisdom is public. It's available to everybody. 
And God is wise, and he upholds the wise. He upholds those who live out loud in the context of corruption, in the context of the broad way. And when we live out loud in that context, God is right there, and he upholds that individual. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul who said, everybody deserted me, but the Lord stood with me. You know where that was? That was in the context of a courtroom scene. It's like when the church assembles for discipline and, and, and Jesus says to Peter, whatever you have bound on earth has already been bound in heaven. It's as if God is there in the courtroom judging us as we judge one another. We'd better be careful how we judge. God is right there and he upholds wisdom and he uses us, our vessel. He uses us to glorify himself in the public arena. Are you with me? Are you seeing this? You know the most, the most alarming teaching for me in the scriptures goes something like this. Jesus pulls his disciples in close. He says, guys, look at me. Now, you've been with me for, I don't know, a little bit. And, uh, and so let's do an experiment. This is, my, this is my translation. Let's do an experiment. I am now going to send you out like sheep among Anybody know the next word? Among wolves. I'm going to send you out like sheep among wolves. And everybody in this room, in that moment, if you were raised in church world, is going to say the same thing. Jesus, that seems really unwise. But if you want to be where Jesus is, if you want to know his power, if you want to get him into your courtroom, where do you got to be? In other words, the author wants us to connect the dots that wisdom is public. And if wisdom is public, the people of God must go public to claim that they actually have wisdom from God. That's the way the wise people in Scripture live. But this would have meant something else to them too, I think. When you ask the question, so where is God? Where is God? This would have provided that generation a viable answer. Where is he? Where is he doing his work? They could have looked out in their own generation, really, and looked at figures like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who discovered God where? In the fire. They could have looked at Esther. They could have looked at Esther and said, where is God? Well, it's when somebody was willing to give their life away. That's when God reveals himself in the most pronounced kind of way. Uh, where's God, Daniel, when you stand alone? Because you're right, and because God's truth demands it. That's where you can find the salvation of God. Now, did everybody who stood firm live? I venture to guess some were eaten by lions, even though they did the right thing. But God will defend that person. Something will happen when we stand for the truth in a culture that doesn't, something happens when we live out loud. A testimony goes out. The glory of God goes out in such a way that ultimately the verdict will be that the Lord knows. He's intimate with. He reveals that the way of righteousness is a particular kind of way. He wants his glory to escape. He wants it to escape through your life. He calls us to that place of wisdom. The wise understand. Can you imagine how encouraging it would have been to know 
to know as a Jew in that context, in that culture, that they could be enviable by the people of the land, that the wicked would envy them if they should buckle down and do what the wise know to do. Which leads me to my final thought as I invite the worship team back to the stage. And it's going fast forward now to maybe where you and I connect with this in a little bit more pronounced way. To Jesus. And Jesus with his disciples. That's you and that's me. And Jesus with his disciples just before he leaves his disciples alone. He's had a ministry with them, and at the end of his ministry, in the book of Matthew, he simply says this to his disciples. He says, go in all the world and preach the gospel. Go and make disciples. Isn't that what he says? He says, go and make disciples. By virtue of the command, we must be in proximity with those who do not know God. We have to be narrow gate kind of people, but narrow gate kind of people live among broad gate kind of individuals. Because that's where the ministry is at. And you can't make disciples if you're not with the Broadway kind of individual. That we're actually to be moving outward towards those who are completely unlike us. Why? Well, Jesus commands it just like he commanded his disciples to be like sheep among the wolves. But I believe it's because it's where we see Jesus work. You know, the times in my life, come on, the times in my life when I have seen Jesus work, when I am at the greatest place of dependence and the greatest place of emotional connection to my God and Savior, the times when that happens is the times that I have placed myself intentionally in the proximity of those who might hate me because of what I believe. Why would I deny myself that pleasure? And yet all the time, the temptation, the temptation is to be steadfast and immovable, but never abounding in the work of the Lord. Or we redefine the work of the Lord as an entirely internal idea. But the work of the Lord, according to Jesus, is to go and to make disciples. And by the way, it ends this way, and this is important. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching them to deserve all that I command you, and lo, I am with you always. Even to the end of the age. Until Jesus comes back, that's the end of the age. Until that time takes place, Jesus is with those who do what? Are making disciples. Now, is Jesus with you even if you're not? I think he is. But in that verse, there's a specific promise. And the promise isn't that he's just with everybody. The promise is that if you are making disciples, he is with you. When you do what he asks you to do, you can call him friend. If you call him Lord, but you don't do what he does, then what are you? You're not a disciple. Jesus is calling us to discipleship. He's calling us to go because there we see him in visible form, as it were. He manifests himself when we are on mission. The question is, are we on mission? Are we living an out loud kind of life? Well, I want to encourage you with these words and then one last thought. These words come to us from 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, and it says this, Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Where are you supposed to live? Among unbelieving neighbors. 
Be careful you live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, because that's what happens, that's what happens, they will what? They will see something. This isn't metaphorical or figurative. They'll see you. <laughs> They'll see something. They'll see something of the glory of God, and in the day of judgment, they will glorify God. Come on, come on. Don't you want that? Isn't that the life that you want? Isn't that the thing that you want? And where are you moving? The question is this, is your heart, is your heart in tune with the pathway of wisdom? Is your heart in tune with the pathway of wisdom? Are you moving in this direction? The wise understand that to shrink back, to hide behind the walls of your own monastic movement never produces deep roots. You want deep roots? You want to yield fruit in season? Well, well then you're going to have to live a life that's visible to people. You're going to have to know your name. You're going to have to move into their neighborhood. You may have to uproot to be deeply rooted your whole life. You may have to lose it if you want to find it, if you want to gain the whole world. Jesus calls us to that radical kind of life for our good and for his glory. And I want to leave you with one haunting thought. I hope it disturbs you. I, I know as preachers are supposed to leave you with a positive. I will in a minute. I'm going to leave you with a negative. You okay with that? You're, you're intelligent people. We can sing all day long about how great and how big God is. And he is. In fact, I think we need to, we can't even capture how big he is. But listen, if we think, oh, he can break every chain. He's so powerful. He can do anything. But we never go where he calls us to go because we're afraid we might fall. How big, really, do we think he is? Sheep amongst wolves. Is that the kind of life you're willing to live? Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play. Thank you.